Welcome to the Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm Jessica Dahlquist, your host, and every week I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons that they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two moms parent in the same way, and we should celebrate that and learn from one another. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today, and if you like what you hear, please share the show with a friend. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 294 of the podcast. Happy March. How are we already in March? Loving the warmer temperatures, and it's been a good week so far. Hope you are experiencing the same. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest today, Anne Bogle. I have been a longtime fan of Anne, and if you like reading, will love reading like I do, Anne's book recommendations have been serving the masses for a long time now in the form of her books, her podcast, her blog. She's the creator of the popular blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy. And on her podcast, she also talks about all things books and helping people to find the right interesting book for them. She's a mom of four, so we're going to talk about her motherhood journey, but we're also going to talk about her new book that's just now coming out, releasing today, Don't Overthink It, subtitled Making Easier Decisions, Stop Second Guessing, and Bring More Joy to Your Life. I don't know about you, but I could really stop second guessing my decisions, and I know that many of you suffer that same issue. So we're going to talk about how this book came to be, tips for overcoming decision fatigue, how to help our kids make decisions and stick with their decisions, and the role of compassion in overthinking, which is another thing I really love. So let's get to my conversation with the amazing Ann Bogle. All right, I'm so excited to be chatting with Ann Bogle today. Hi, Ann. How are oh, you? Right. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It feels like we're longtime friends, and I'm sure you get this a lot as a podcaster. People feel like they know my life and everything and my voice, and it feels the same way when you talk to another podcaster or even just an author when you can really uh, relate to the stories they've told and the friends they've shared about and their kids and everything. Like you do feel like, you know, people, isn't that weird? <laughs> well, it's a, it's only weird in theory, like sure. but in my heart, it feels totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you do feel like you know people when you listen to them in your earbuds. Yes. Every week, regularly. Right. Absolutely. Did you ever picture yourself being this public with your life? Um, you know, that's funny because I don't feel, I mean, I feel like in some ways I'm really public with my life, but uh-huh. in other ways, not at all. And that has really shifted as my kids have gotten older. Sure. I bet. I bet. Because the things you were once able to document and share like, oh, listen to this funny thing, or they took their clothes off in public, like not as cute when they're teenagers, right? <laughs> you know, I was about to say that I never like shared a ton about my kids, but I did totally write a whole in-depth essay once about my child refusing to put on clothes <laughs> and sitting on the church steps because I wouldn't take him in wearing just just only seriously a diaper imagine that imagine that I'm sure you can yeah <laughs> we've all been there we absolutely have but I think that's what makes you relatable and I think we all especially when we're, we are more public um, whether we have a podcast or writing or speaking or whatever it is you know it makes you more relatable when you are able to weave in bits of who you are and kind of backing up what you say you believe and what you say you stand for, backing that up with how does that actually look in Anne's life or in my life, right? 
that's the thing I find so interesting about um, learning from other people's lives and experiences is very specific examples make these abstract principles come to life. Even if I would never live out that principle in the same way that like you are, Jessica, yeah. um, just seeing how someone like really puts the rubber to the road mm-hmm. helps me envision how I might do it in my own life, even if it looks completely different. Oh, absolutely. And the emotions you feel, it's like, oh, she felt that way too. She felt desperate and like she was unable to get her kid to put on the clothes. Me too. But I never would have thought that Anne would have been in that situation. Right? (laughs) And so it really... Whatever the situation is, you can think. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you've done a lot in your career and in your life. You are a mom to four kids. Will you give just a little brief background? Who's Anne Bogle for people that may not know you yet? Sure. Um, After spending the first decade of my professional life working offline, I started a blog called Martyr Mrs. Darcy in 2011. And from there, um, added a book club and a podcast called What Should I Read Next and started writing books. Um, So now we're nine years in, but most of what I do is clustered around um, writing about issues that matter to women and always have, but writing about what they mean for women right now. And then writing and thinking about how getting more out of your reading life can really help you get more out of life. Hmm, That is so interesting. And I think for writers, especially sometimes you're so in the trenches, well, you don't have to be a writer, but you're so in the trenches, you don't give yourself the space to reflect or to live or to experience more new things to put into that next book or to apply in that next season of your life, right? And so you really do have to have that cyclical type behavior of experiencing life, learning new things, putting it into practice, and then the next thing comes, right? Yes, it's a really important and sometimes tricky rhythm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what role did reading play as a child for you or in your teenage years? Like, how did you develop this love and thirst for reading? Oh, I don't know how exactly I developed. I mean, I didn't, it's not like I set out to do it. I've just always been a reader, um, I mean, that sounds kind of like I tripped and fell. I do know that uh, my parents are big readers, especially my dad, and that my mom took me to the library religiously as a child. We were there all the time, and my dad preferred the bookstore. I can't think of a single time he took me to the library, but I had two parents, and so I got to go both places all the time, and I just really loved – I loved going there as a child. Like Everything about books and reading was fun to me and comforting and exciting, and I – I feel fortunate never to have had the experience where um, reading was made to be a chore. Mm. Um, I didn't become an English major in college, even though I thought about it, because I was warned, like, you can make your reading work, and then you won't want to read anymore. And I probably took that a little bit too much to heart, Mm. but I am grateful that I never had a time when it became treachery. Um, I've just, it's always been something I've really enjoyed. Oh, that's so awesome. I remember sitting on the floor at Barnes & Noble with my mom, and she would teach me about what makes a good children's book. Right. And so I was the oldest and I had two younger brothers. So mostly at this age, we were picking the the picture books and things for my brothers. And so she would say like, okay, so, you know, this is the elements of a great children's book. And, and these are the ones that are not as well written. And, and she always wanted to make sure she brought in really quality literature to our home. And she became a preschool teacher and still really relishes in bringing in that quality literature. And I think it is just all about that exposure and that modeling that happens. And, you know, you never want to force your kid to to assume a certain hobby or be a certain thing. But when you're modeling your values, like reading and education and things like that, they're going to pick up on it, maybe in different degrees than you, but they're going to pick up on that. Yeah. I mean, for better or worse. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I know that's true. We don't have to talk about the worst things today. (laughs) (laughs) So that's good. That's good. And so you go on to start your blog and, and your podcast and reading has become a big part of your life. So I thought it was really, really interesting when you launched the book, reading people about the Enneagram. So first of all, fantastic title because you're a reading person, but reading people is about this personality test, the Enneagram. How did you get interested in the Enneagram? I mean, I think kind of the same reason that I'm interested in books and reading. I'm just fascinated by how other people see the world and approach it. Yeah. I love So that. like if you, if you read a novel, you get to see what it's like to live somebody else's life for 300 pages or however long the book lasts. And I felt like with the Enneagram, you do get to understand what it would be like to live in the world from someone else's point of view. And I, there's something in me that just finds that inherently fascinating. Oh, I do too. I do too. And some people find the personality test, you know, regardless of what it is, whether it's Enneagram or something else, limiting, like putting you in a box or things. But I just think there's so many different manifestations of each number and how, Mm -hmm. you know, they play out and everything. I don't think it's limiting at all, but I think that understanding of what drives people instead of just assuming, I mean, it's kind of like the love languages principle, right? We tend to give love in the same way we want to receive it. That tends to be our tendency. And sometimes the other person ends up not feeling loved at all. So when you really understand Mm -hmm. people's motivations, Mm -hmm. I just think it's so helpful. My husband disagrees. (laughs) He sees it as a box. But I'll I'll, I'll, hear what you're saying. And anyone who's talked about personality, like, out in the world knows that you do encounter people who say, like, oh, I could never – I could never speak to you with kindness because I'm a confrontational personality. And it, that's that's not how it's meant to be used, but that's the person limiting themselves. That's not the personality framework imposing that limit. Yeah, but we could probably guess what number they are. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't do that because you're not supposed to do that. No, so I just thought that was such a fantastic read and the way you applied it to, to really understanding um, people, not just understanding your own number. I think some of the tendency is to, to really – look inward only, but when you're able to look outward and apply it across the board, I think it can be wildly helpful. So if anybody's listening that doesn't have an in-depth understanding of the Enneagram, I think reading people is a great baseline because it gives you a very, um, I don't know, it's very approachable in, in the way that you describe everything. You get a lot of accurate information, but it doesn't feel too, too much. So I think it's a great, a great, great, well done read. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, very good. But you are launching a new book. You've written a new book called Don't Overthink It. Anne, are you an overthinker? Have you been an overthinker? (laughs) Oh, I mean, I've certainly had my moments, more than a few of them. Yeah. And what do you tend to overthink? Can you pinpoint, is there a certain aspect of your life that you tend to overthink more than others? Or how does that look for you? Oh, absolutely. For me, um, plans, Mm. logistics, transportation. I mean, we have two parents, four kids. We have a dog. Our, our, even though we, our kids don't do like piles of activities, it requires a dance Mm -hmm. to get everybody where they need to be. And just, I can really overthink, um, are we doing the right thing? Are we doing, are we doing it in the right order? How can I make this easier? I tend to be a natural maximizer, Jessica, Mm -hmm. and that impulse makes me miserable. So what does that mean? What is a, what is a maximizer? What does that look like? Oh, it's someone who wants to be, uh, it's, 
another word for it is like a perfectionist. I am definitely a recovering perfectionist. And until I started writing this book, I really was blind to the link between perfectionism and overthinking. But what I found is that anytime in my life that I'm really want something to be the best, I want it to be the most efficient, the most smooth, the least, the least disruptive. I want the traffic to be the easiest. So what time should we leave? Like anytime I make it a superlative, um, I'm just on the road to overthinking. Nothing good is going to happen inside my brain. Absolutely. And so many times we feel that the things that we overthink the most tend to be the least consequential. Do you find that to be true? Um, I don't. Is a general statement? Like, sure. But I don't know. Like people can also really go down the, the – sure. um, uh, my elbow hurts. Is it a tumor? Right. right. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. That, so that, that can definitely be a thing and that you could say that your health and life are pretty consequential, but sure. I mean, how I define overthinking in the book is anytime you're involved in unhealthy, repetitive thoughts that are not helping anything and making you miserable. And it's not overthinking if you're giving it the amount of attention you want to, but I don't want to give the logistics of my carpool arrangements a lot of attention. So it is very easy to overthink those things that don't merit our, our limited mental energy being lavished upon it. Um, but that's, it's easy to do. So yeah. in the, that sense, like, yeah, it's really easy to overthink the small stuff. Right. And, and most things in life, I mean, they're going to come and go. Right. And, and sure, we might make mistakes along the way and we might learn something and we might fail or we need to ask for forgiveness or things like that happen. But but most things are the small things. Right. And so I think when we can put things in proper context, like you said, it's the intention that you and most of us don't put behind the thinking, the energy, everything. I love how you describe and I think of it this way, too, our energy and are thinking like kind of as a budget. And so when people say like, oh, I don't have any more time for this. I don't have any more energy for this. It's like, could you swap it out? Like think about how much time and energy you're worrying about something or stewing over something or recalculating mm-hmm. something. What if you just swap that out for action or swap that out for for anything else that's more productive? Is that kind of how you describe it? Um. Yeah, something that I really realized in the course of writing the book, well, that I realized even more, I don't think I would have wanted to write the book if I didn't think this mattered. But when we spend our time overthinking, it's not just, it's not just, oops, like I did this thing I didn't want to, like that always comes with an opportunity cost. Because if you're spending your time thinking about things that don't merit it, then you're not spending time thinking about things that do really matter to you. I mean, that is the trade you're making when you Mm-hmm. lapse into overthinking and I mean that's not how that's not how anybody wants to spend their life. Hey everyone, I wanted to interrupt just real quick to thank one of our show sponsors and that is Blue Blocks. Have you heard of Blue Blocks? Blue Blocks offers advanced light filtering eyewear that improves your sleep and your health. You know, I truly believe that your best self starts with your sleep and when we're all well rested, our mind and body perform better. And you guys know, I sleepwalk, I sleep eat, and I need all the help I can get with my sleep. These Australian-made science-backed glasses block harmful artificial blue light emitted by our man-made lighting in digital devices. And this allows our body to perform how it should. 
Bluebox also offers computer glasses, which I have with a clear lens to combat digital eye strain when working at the computer. And I notice a huge, huge difference when it comes to eye strain at the end of the day on days where I work a lot on the computer or on my phone. These world-leading glasses come in non-prescription prescription and readers, which is really exciting. And you can even send in your own frames and get them made with your prescription. I got the Jasper frame and you guys, when they arrived, the box is beautiful. I opened it up and I was so impressed with the quality and the fit of these glasses. You know how sometimes you get nervous about ordering things like glasses and shoes and things online because of the fit, right? but I could not be more impressed by Blue Blocks in their luxury feel. I was actually in a meeting the other day um, with Turnkey Product Management and I had my glasses on and everyone's like, oh, those are cute, where'd you get those? And I told them Blue Blocks. I can definitely tell the difference in terms of eye strain and I feel good in them. So the best bit is that for every pair of Blue Blocks glasses you buy, Blue Blocks donates a pair of reading glasses to someone in need in the developing world. I love that. So get 15% off your first purchase to, and you can just head to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and enter code EMP at checkout. Thank you so much to Blue Blocks for not only sending me a pair of glasses to try out so that I can use them every single day, but also thanks for sponsoring this show and making it possible. I'll link everything at extraordinarymomspodcast.com for you so you can take advantage of that offer. Thanks, and let's get back to my conversation with Anne. How does this relate when we are overthinking things on behalf of our kids, especially like as they get older and they mm -hmm. really do need to start taking more accountability for themselves and their own decisions and overthinking mm -hmm. or not for themselves. How, how old are your kids right now? My oldest just turned 17 wow. and my youngest just turned 10. Oh, oh my gosh. So and my I'm still oldest. i used to them sounding so old. Yes, my oldest is <laughs> When you're 10. older, it sounds so different to me. Absolutely. And so how have you been able to kind of release that or have you been able to? Something, I mean, parenting and overthinking and children and helping them make decisions and modeling the decisions you're making for them. I mean, that's a whole can of worms, Jessica. <laughs> but so there's two things here. I've realized that when I'm overthinking something about my children's life, maybe even on their behalf, um, one, I'm modeling behavior that I would not want them to replicate for themselves in a million years. Like that is not what I want for my children, for them to be obsessing over like, well, should I leave at one thirty or one forty? Like what yeah. is traffic going to be better? What will I do if I get there 10 minutes early? You know, like you could spend 10 minutes debating, should I leave 10 minutes earlier or not? Which is a wash. But I mean, you could have done, you could have, you could have walked around the block instead. Like I could use the steps. I know that. <laughs> um, but so there's the thing where you don't want that to be modeled for them, but you also want to make sure that you are using your limited mental energy and your time really well. And I think in some ways it's easier and harder to do that as a parent. Like whenever we're thinking about someone else, we have perspective about that, their behavior that we don't have about our own brains. Mm -hmm. However, when that someone else is your children, it's very easy as parents know to lose perspective. And it can be tricky as parents to want to do the right thing, the best thing for our children, because they're the most important people in the world to us, our mm -hmm. families. And yet 
if we do try to be perfectionistic about raising our families, um, that's not going to make anyone happy, including them. Mm. Yeah, I think that is so important. My 10-year-old is a perfectionist as well, and, and I see his these tendencies coming out in a negative way so far because of just his maturity level and his life experience and everything. So if he loses a game or he feels like he didn't perform his very best on a test or whatever, he beats himself up for a long time and he's overthinking those those deficiencies and those weaknesses and, and giving it so much time and space. And I think it is important to give our kids the the permission to feel what they're going to feel and not just say, don't overthink it. Like, like, it's fine. It's fine. You don't need to worry. It's not a big deal. Whatever. Like, it's not our job to replace the thoughts for them, but giving them the tools and, like you said, the modeling to say, like, well, this is how, like, I work through things when I feel disappointed, right? And so we're, so showing them and demonstrating even adults are not immune from these things and showing them how to work through that and then helping them to work those steps, too, to get to a different space and change their thinking around it and everything. I don't know. How would, how would you approach that with kids that are, that are younger? Oh, I mean, they, something that I really learned, um, that I knew, but then just saw borne out over and over and over again in the research is that our mental circuits dig groups. Like anytime Mm -hmm. you have a pattern of thought that you repeat, it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and harder to eradicate, whether that's a healthy behavior or a negative one. So if I see my child beating herself up because she wished she had made a different decision last week, um, I feel like it's my responsibility as a parent, not just to like let her do her thing and let that go because she's like a wallower by nature. Um, that's not the word that I use to characterize her, but yeah. I'm, say, I'm yeah, saying, yeah. Like I've heard, heard people be like, oh, my child just likes to mope. I just let them indulge it. Um, I mean, I think there's definitely a place for giving our children space, but as the adults in their lives who interact with them the most, um, like our, our kids need help developing healthy patterns of thought because otherwise you spend 20 years indulging perfectionistic tendencies. Um, they become really, really strong. That's, that's not in 20 years. My child is not going to look back and say, mom, I wish you'd let me indulge my perfectionistic tendencies. I mean, they wouldn't be happy with me for not helping them with that. Um, like, so they need to be themselves and you shouldn't try to change their personality and you shouldn't, I mean, it needs to be done with such great care because we've probably all had a conversation with a child or a teenager where is the adult we know so clearly what they should be doing differently and they don't want to hear it from us, not the way we're telling them. So it's definitely um, a delicate territory. But I do think like if you have a child who's really second guessing themselves, that's hard on themselves, that's beating themselves up, um, I would definitely, I mean, if my kid was doing that, we would definitely be having some delicate conversations about like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about how to think about this differently. Let's talk about what we can do. Let's talk about what we're going to do next time. Yes. Yeah. I love that. And being that safe person for them to feel like they're not just alone in that experience or that feeling. Like they're not alone in feeling that emotion in general. And the love we have for our kids is so deep. We want to help them through that not wrap them in bubble wrap, not make them immune from these challenges because these are the things that fortify us and help us to make better decisions mm-hmm. later or endure challenges and, and things like that. So mm-hmm. I love where you talk about uh, interrupting overthinking 
from the beginning when you're able to acknowledge it. So I think the first thing is recognizing, am I an overthinker? And I think most of us, it may look differently in each of us, but a lot of us do overthink things. So acknowledging that the overthinking is occurring. How, what are some of your strategies for interrupting that overthinking from the, from the start? Well, the first step is to realize you're doing it. And it's been interesting since this book has been, it's not quite out yet, but advanced copies have been circulating for a while. And to hear from readers who say things like, I don't consider myself an overthinker. But then you started talking about perfectionism and like, you should see me try to buy toothpaste at Target to choose between 30 brands. Like I didn't realize that was a thing for me, but then you put a name to it and now I can see it. Or there's a chapter about, uh, well, two actually about spending money. And so many people have said, I didn't consider myself to be an overthinker, but then you started talking about money and oh my goodness, like that is 1000% me. Um, but you just kind of like we were talking about personality and the love languages a few minutes ago, you can't change a behavior if you don't realize you're doing it. Otherwise it's like, you're the fish in water. Like what is water? It's just, it's always around you. You don't even see it. Mm. Um, and I find that to be so true for overthinking. So the first step is really to pay attention to how you're living your life. And if you can actually notice those times when you are lapsing into overthinking, when you are spending your time and your mental energy on things that don't deserve it in a way that doesn't make you happy when you'd much rather be doing something that matters more to you instead. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's the first step to actually doing something about it. Yeah. I love that so, so much. And, and I think when you're in a healthier space where you're not in, in the trenches of overthinking, I think that's the time to make the plan, right? Not when you're in the thick of it. I like just having a list written down of like, what are the things I really enjoy? What are the things that really fill me up? What are the things that are simple? And it can be as simple as going for a walk. Like you said, spending those 10 minutes going for a quick walk instead of stewing for the 10 minutes, right? And you can still think, but but just getting moving, painting your nails, uh, dropping treats off at somebody's house, making a phone call, sending a text, whatever it is. But having those tools and strategies that you know will fill you up and will kind of snap you out of that, um, where we know it could become a whole rabbit hole for you. I think that's really critical because once you're in the thick of it, that's it's hard. It's hard to, to think clearly uh, and just snap out of it. Yes, it is. But it's interesting that you talked about getting moving and you kind of meant it um, metaphorically, but it's your examples are all very action based. And I think that's so interesting because a great rule of thumb is if your brain is stuck, move your body. Okay. I didn't even know I was doing that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And something else that I found that was so interesting about overthinking is I had really um, not given the foundational things we do throughout the day enough credit. Um, Hmm. But if you think about it, like the last time you maybe got stuck in the Bermuda Triangle on your phone of Instagram, email, and some other kind of social media, it probably wasn't when you were feeling alert, awake, well-rested, mentally refreshed. We, we overthink things when we're tired. And so I've really come to appreciate the value of, um, taking good care of our physical bodies. Hmm. 
what's good for the body is good for the brain. And that is so simple. It's been really easy for me in my own life to neglect the importance of taking care of my body. But it's so true. Like that is such a huge thing you can do to set yourself up for success. Um, How you schedule and structure the rhythms of your day really make a difference. And it doesn't have to go perfectly. I'm not talking about how you have to have like a perfect routine or Mm -hmm. you're doomed to overthinking, but just paying attention to how you've set up your life, it makes a difference. And also building in um, almost like islands of respite where you can regroup when you need it. Like one of the chapters in the book is about the power of ritual and how you can build those into your life as almost like reset buttons. Because even if your brain has gone totally off the rails in the morning, if you know, Mm -hmm. like at 1130, you stop, you have a lunch break, you look at your priorities. This doesn't have to be what you do. I'm just saying that this could be something you do. This is similar to what I do. Um, it's, it's a way to not let, um, not let your brain be taken over, um, by, um, routine or fatigue, but to consciously stop and evaluate like, Hey, how am I doing right now? Am I doing what I want to be doing with my time and my energy? Do I need to redirect? And if so, how? But if you don't have a ritual, then you just need to rely on yourself to snap out of it and realize, whoa, 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 whoa. Like what's, yeah. <laughs> some, something has gone awry here. Not that that can't happen, but having like a built-in island where you can like pause and take a breath and regroup can be really, really useful. I've heard that from a lot of readers already that that's a change they're making after reading the book. That's amazing. That is, that is such a great tip. And the word that kept coming to me was margin and having more margin in your life. I think sometimes we puzzle piece our day together in a very impressive way. But as soon as one appointment goes past five minutes, Mm -hmm. 10 minutes past, oh, oh, you start to feel it. You start to feel it bubbling up inside you. At least I do if you're prone to anxiety. I mean, I've had days like that where something is seven minutes late at eight o'clock and you know you're still going to be like paying for it at 4 p.m. Totally. Uh, And 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 you're thinking about 4 p.m. Recovery time. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've definitely ended up in that situation because some days really do feel impossible. Um, but, but, uh, I think I used to schedule myself too tightly just because I always imagined a best case scenario, not a realistic one for how my day was going to unfold. And then, and again, that's that inner maximizer who wants everything to be as efficient as possible. Um, but that's why she makes me miserable, Jessica, because that's just not possible. Yes, and I think it's totally fine for some days to look like that. Some days it's just going to be crazy and harried and you're going to feel a little more amped up and, and things need to get done. And that's okay. But if that's yeah. your every day, is that the type of life you want to reflect back on and be like, oh, I'm so glad I crammed everything in. I'm so glad I was the mom I wanted to be as I was like rushing from place to place. And uh, I don't know. We, it's just worth thinking about. What, what do you want to I look mean, back on? Some days I definitely feel like the goal is just to get by. Totally. Like I just got to make it through. Yes. Yes. But it's a seasons. way of being in the world. Um, that's, that's not, that's not the one most of us want to choose. No, no. And when I'm overthinking, I'm so focused on myself. You know, I can hardly see anybody else and what anybody else is going through. And I'm somebody that tends to really love other people and really love being there for other people and everything. So when I'm caught in that cycle, I want to be aware of it so that I can stop it, interrupt it, get out of it and go back to the person that I want to be. And like you said, you're creating more space for other those things when you're eliminating the overthinking. Yes. And you're not 
you're not wrong. Like the research very clearly shows that overthinking hurts our relationships Mm -hmm. because it does make us so focused on ourselves. Um, It makes life harder and it may even contribute to mental disorders like depression and severe anxiety and alcohol abuse. Like it is not good. And it's not, it's not neutral. I think a lot of times we think of overthinking as something like, Oh, I don't really like it, but it's fine. Um, It's not, it's not fine. Yeah. Um, of course, like I, I really think that almost all of us do it from time to time and that doesn't have to be a huge deal because we don't have to be, you know, perfectionist about it. Yes. But chronic overthinking is really not a good thing. Yeah. My therapist once told me simply attempt to give things their appropriate weight in your life. And some things will take a lot more care and time and, and thinking and planning and that's important that you allow yourself to give itself the, the weight that it deserves. But for the things that are hard, like conversation that's hardly a big deal, but you're thinking about it three days later and wondering if you should have said something differently, come on, mm-hmm. come on. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's where you know, nope, nope, that's not healthy. Yeah. Um, the most useful thing, piece of advice I encountered about a situation like that is if you're wondering – okay, three days ago I had this conversation. I feel kind of weird about it. Yeah. Um, the mental trick that helps you get a fresh perspective is, okay, your best friend just told you she was thinking this way. What do you tell her? What would you advise her? Would you be like, oh my gosh, three days ago, what happened? Oh, you should probably be worried a lot. No, you'd be like, I love you. I think you're great. That's how, that kind of stuff happens every day. It's fine. Just let yeah. it go. Especially if you do say something where it's like, oh, I probably should have said that. And then you just go back to the person and say, I'm so sorry, that came out wrong. I, I wasn't thinking and then move on. Like you've done mm-hmm. your part and then mm-hmm. allowing yourself to say, I did my part and I'm going to move on. I'm not going to continue this. It's hard. It's hard. Like, Cause like you said, the grooves and the pathways that are so ingrained since childhood for, for many of us and most of us. And I love mm-hmm. that we're having more conversations around surrounding mental health and just different topics like overthinking and stress and anxiety and distraction and all these things. The more we have these conversations and we have this awareness and self-awareness about it, I really, really hope that our kids will, I mean, probably a lot of them will still end up in therapy because that's just, therapy's great, but <laughs> that they won't be necessarily dealing with some of the same issues that, that we did because we didn't have that same those same conversations and that same awareness or that same modeling. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I completely agree. Like my hope for my kids is that the things that need to be normalized will be normalized, but that other, um, like there are some very, like we just had, um, drug education at our, um, at our kids' middle school recently. And they were like, Hey, just so you know, we have the statistics, like your kids' classmates are vaping. Like it's a fact because it's become normalized. So Obviously, I don't want that to be normalized for my children, but things like talking about your feelings and your stress level and your regrets. Um, some of us are very inclined to bottle things up inside and ruminate about them instead of discuss them with people we love, like our mothers, if we're mm-hmm. a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd like to see those conversations normalized instead of what I what I see happen with a lot of um, kids, um, my, my children, their friends, if they're in embarrassed about the way they're thinking about something, if they're not happy about something that happened, then they don't want anybody to know. Mm. Um, so they just end up ruminating about it without having anyone to share it with. And it's interesting how the power of, um, speaking things that are bothering us to someone else, or sometimes we need the validation to hear like, 
no, that that's fine. That happens to everyone. It's okay. And sometimes we just need to say it out loud or put it into words. And mm-hmm. once we do, it loses its power. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of feeling like you have 900 million things to do, <laughs> but then you make a list and there's like four. Yes. It felt overwhelming in your head, but then you get it out of your head and it doesn't look so bad. Yes. Um, that's really what I hope for my children, both on the like cosmic, what does it mean to be a person in the world level? And also I'm really worried about how I'm going to get my homework done level. Right. Absolutely. And I think we also, when it's ruminating in our head, we misjudge the amount of time something's going to take and the intensity or challenge that that thing's going to present for us. Right. So, so as soon as you get it on paper and you can kind of quantify, oh, actually making that appointment, I've had this list where it's like I have to make a pediatric dental appointment for my kids and I've had it on the list for like two weeks and I just haven't wanted to do it because I'm like oh I've got to find the phone number and I'm not sure if they take our insurance and it just felt too hard I did it in three minutes this morning three minutes and I've been thinking about it and knowing I needed to do it for two weeks why did I just do it two weeks ago right and and going back to what you were saying about the conversations with our kids and and that comfort level My 10-year-old was sitting on my bed and we were just chatting the other night, kind of decompressing and talking about friends and choices and things. And at the end, he says, do you think my friends are sitting on their mom's beds talking about things? And I'm like, well, I don't know. What What do you think? He's like, well, and then he named off a few kids where it's like, yeah, I bet that kid probably does talk to his mom, but definitely not this kid. I doubt that mom asks him about what's going on at school. And he's like, but we definitely wouldn't go to school the next day and tell them, you know, when our, when we say like, what'd you do last night? We were, we were not, we were not going to say, oh, I was just like hanging with my mom and chatting with my mom. <laughs> but what if they did? What if they did say like, I had a great conversation with my mom about vaping or about whatever it is. What if that was just on the table? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're not, it's not the cool thing to do. So they're not bringing it up. So it was cute that he even realized, does anybody else do this? <laughs> not yet. It's not. Not yet. I hope, I hope it becomes more normal, but yeah, I think it's wonderful to have good relationship with your parents and have that as a form of esteem that we're a close family and that's something to be proud of. Yes, and something that I also found confirmed in the literature is that is something you can do to incense to increase that sense of family coherence ah. is implement rituals in your life. I really didn't realize the extent to which that was important. Uh, the family dinner gets a lot of press, but it mm-hmm. doesn't. Ha- there's nothing magic about dinner. It's yeah. about what happens when people come together. You get together to pay to play like parcheesi. Or eat Cheetos. Like the important thing is that it happens and it happens regularly. And it really does bolster kids' um, confidence and sense of identity. And it's it's really important. So having these conversations is important. But also there are, there are more tangible things you can do to help your children. Oh, I love that idea. And it can look so unique for each family. Right? I have three boys, so we're a soccer family, and we love going to support each other in their games and then playing soccer on the weekends and playing pass and going on walk. Like, we love that. But for somebody else, it might be a board game. For somebody else, it might be listening, you know, doing a read aloud at night. For somebody else, and you can do multiple things, but really coming together as a family and identifying what do we want our family culture to look like? And, and like you said, having those routines and having our kids expect that they can rely upon those things. I love that. I think it's more powerful than we definitely give it credit for. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've really found that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, I am just loving your book so much. Don't overthink it. When this airs, it will actually be out in the world. So on March 3rd, um, which will be technically today. So congratulations, your book's out in the world. And I want everyone to go pick it up. But I'm curious as somebody that does wear so many different hats. And what is your most favorite thing that you're doing right now? Oh, see, Jessica, my favorite thing is the variety. Okay. Interesting answer. Yeah. Huh. Um, right now I'm starting to like really seriously work on the summer reading guide that'll come out in May. Mm-hmm. And I always love doing that. But one of the reasons I love doing it is I haven't done it since last year, yeah. approximately this time. And I really enjoy the, um, rotation of things. Yeah. That's really neat. And again, you have those routines and schedules and even though it only comes around once a year for you to look forward to it the next season and know that you haven't done it in a while, that just shows again the power of those routines and and expectation, right? That's very true. And mm-hmm. I have noticed in my work life that if I feel like I'm not giving something attention, it it can make me think like, oh my gosh, is it going to be okay without me? Does it need to be watched? But yeah. being able to tell myself like, nope, we've got a plan that will happen in the right timing yeah. um, is something that's really helped me um, not be freaked out or stressed about that kind of thing. And not overthinking it. There you go. There you go. Exactly. And this has been such a delightful conversation. Where can people find you online? And we'll link to everything, of course, at Extraordinary Moms Podcast as well. But where can people find you? It has been. Thank you so much for having me. My home base online is at my blog, modernmrsdarcy.com. And you can find my podcast, What Should I Read Next, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and that is a fantastic premise. You have people on that tell you about books they've read, that they've enjoyed or not, and then you make a book recommendation for them. And so it's a great way to to read books that you may have never heard of before. And if especially if you find a guest that sounds kind of like you or things, it gives you like some solidarity of like, okay, I feel like it's like a personal recommendation from Anne to me. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. We have a lot of fun with it. I bet you do. I bet you do. Well, Anne, I always ask my guests one final question because it's a motherhood podcast. It's this. What would you tell your pre-motherhood self? Oh, that is such a good question. And I always love to hear what people say. I think I'd say you, this sounds so much like Lost, but, um, you know, the TV show from a million years ago that started so great and ended so So not. weird. Um, but <laughs> You've, you've got what it takes. You'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very common sentiment. And I love hearing how different people view it, but definitely relax. You're good enough. Your kids are meant for you. You're equipped. All those things. It's like, if we could live into that a little more, I think mm-hmm. we, we could not overthink our parenting quite as much. Oh my gosh. Because there's so much information out there and yeah. then we get overwhelmed and overloaded. I think something else I would say is um, to lighten up and trust your instincts. Mm, I love that too. And thanks for taking the time. This was such a treat to get to speak with you and have your soothing voice in my ear for 40 minutes. This was just delightful. <laughs> oh, well, it was so great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you loved getting to know Anne today. Definitely check out her book that's out currently, Don't Overthink It. I'm so impressed with all that she has going on and all the different avenues she's taken in her career. It's really quite inspiring to know how much we have permission 
to pivot and learn new things and try new avenues to express our talents and our interests. It's pretty cool, huh? So pick up Don't Overthink It wherever books are sold and everything's linked at ExtraordinaryMomsPodcast.com. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at JessicaDahlquist3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast today, everybody. Sorry it was a little bit late. I've been at Alt Summit and had a little bit of a delay, but I'm grateful that you're tuning in and we will see you next week for another episode with another Extraordinary Mom. Bye.